my name is Crispina French and promoting creative textile reuse is my jam. I'm an OG textile alchemist, worked my way through art school making ragamuffins from thrift store sweaters way back in the 1980s. That college side hustle grew into a full-fledged business and here I am today to show you how to do it too. Stick around for all the things helping to navigate both the chaotic and dreamy chapters of building your profitable textile upcycling business. We'll talk material sourcing, business savvy, product development, marketing, and self-care. Gloss over the hard parts? Not here. Experience, lessons, and know-how. Deep dive into the struggles, wins, and rewards of running your sustainable textile upcycling business. Think of this as your favorite craft class mixed with environmental business school. Are you ready to be inspired, energized, and supported? This is the Rags to Riches Textile Upcycling Podcast. Today's episode of Rags to Riches Textile Upcycling Podcast is brought to you by Sideshow Clothing on Etsy and in person in Craryville, New York. Are you a burgeoning fashion icon who delights in your individual style? Maybe you have a penchant for really good clothing, a love of creative presentation, and respect for our life-giving planet. Or, if you are like me, you like to wear well-made clothing to handle your daily grind and stand up to the test of time. Sideshow Clothing has what you need. Vintage workwear, boots galore, jackets, dresses, ethnic and western wear, the works. Mary curates this creamy collection of inventory, some dating back over 100 years, but mostly fashions from the 1970s through the 1990s. If you want to honor the quality of well-made clothing and stand out in the crowd, check out sideshowclothing.com, where you will find an anecdote to fast fashion and so much more. Thanks for tuning in today, you guys. We're doing something a little different today, which is going to, I'm really actually looking forward to this episode. And I'm here today with my friend, Sarah Stewart, who is a textile upcycling um, creative person who lives up in Concord, New Hampshire, and she is a member of Stitcherhood. And she's also been really helping me volunteering actually a lot of her time to help kind of develop the platform and also help with our upcoming Rags to Riches Summit. So Sarah, thanks so much for being with me today. I'm so excited. This is fun. Yeah. So what we're going to do is um, we're going to have Sarah interview me. It was brought to my attention by one of our listeners that um, they wanted to know more about how I got to where I am. And when Sarah and I were chatting about that idea, I was like, I don't know you know, because I'm me and I'm so close to the situation, it's hard for me to imagine what is of interest. Like, what do you guys, what's the most interesting part or what are your biggest questions for me? So Sarah's like, well, I could interview you. And I'm like, yes, that's awesome. So thank you so much. So take it away, girl. Yeah, this is okay. This is really fun for me. Um, so let's start from the beginning. Um, what were you doing when you first started upcycling when is the beginning okay so the very beginning of my upcycling started in college i was i went to mass art in boston and 
I had done an internship with, or really more of an apprenticeship with a production hand weaver out in, um, on the West coast of Canada on Vancouver Island. And I loved the idea of being able to produce multiples and have the process be creative throughout. But it became really clear that producing in that setting, like hand weaving was just really expensive. Materials were really expensive. You needed a lot of yarn to make any kind of fabric. And I was working myself through school, so I didn't really have a lot of extra money. And um, I actually, there was a workshop that, that there was like a visiting artist who came to mass art and she was a felt artist and she made felt out of like sheep fleece, like roving kind of stuff. And our, it was a workshop. So it was like hands-on and we made felt and I loved the texture of the fabric. But mm, the process it. was, it was wet felting. It was cold. And I just was like, ugh, the process was not fun. So my dad actually said to me, you could get that same texture if you just shrunk wool sweaters in the washing machine. <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay, cool. So that was the beginning of my upcycling journey. We just, my dad and I actually went to our local Goodwill one weekend when I was home visiting my pa- my parents and got a bunch of wool sweaters and washed and dried them. And sure enough, I was like, oh, I was just in love. I was like, you could get bright colors, you could get patterns. There was a ton of wool in the thrift stream that had already been felted. So it wasn't really wearable. Like people had donated them because they were shrunk and they didn't fit anymore. Um, So yeah, that was it. That was when it started. And that was like 1985, 86 in there. So what was the first thing that you made when you were upcycling? Um, well, so the assignment from that class, or that workshop was to make some, you know, make a piece of felt and then create a piece of art using the felt. And um, I made this, it, I later realized it was my first ragamuffin. It was, it was like a, a terror. It was like a, um, a, it was a dinosaur. It had four legs and it was shaped sort of like a dog, but with spiky spine and a long tail and the felt I had made was had this real prehistoric kind of texture to it. It was like very kind of neutrally at that time you couldn't really find brightly colored roving to work with. So it was all kind of natural sheep tones. And I used some yarn to kind of add a little texture and some line to the, to the surface of the felt. Um, So I created that. And then People really liked that. And I made a, a few more of those from felt and I was, I, people wanted to buy them. So I was like super psyched about that. And I started selling them and I was like, this is way too much work. Like being freezing cold up to my elbows in cold water in the middle of February in Boston <laughs> was like not my thing. So um, <laughs> my dad said, oh, you know, get the sweaters. And then, so I already sort of had a product in mind when I bought those sweaters. And so I just started making what later became known as ragamuffins and for the first, I'm going to say 10 years of my production company, which I didn't realize started at that moment, <laughs> um, at least 50% of my sales were um, ragamuffin sales. And I um, I still make them on occasion. They're a little hard on my hands because they take a lot of, you have, you're stitching through many layers of fabric at a time. So yeah, they were ragamuffins. So you're, you just mentioned your production company started in that moment. So what did that look like when you started to scale your company? Well, so I was, um, 
I had just finished, like I was in my third year of school at that time. And I was working, I was waitressing. I was doing a work study job at school. Um, I worked actually for another production hand weaver at, um, in Boston. And then I had this little like job at a coffee shop that was kind of like just a couple of chefs a week. And so I had three jobs and I was really, um, just so stretched for time that what, it enabled me to do was to stop working at, well, first I stopped working at the production weaving place and I was just making ragamuffins during the time I had spent doing that job. And then I was able to just quit the other jobs, except for I kept my waitress job because I really liked that. It was at a restaurant that had um, like live entertainment every night. There was music and there was just a really nice community of people that I worked with. So when I started scaling, I was able to really stop doing as much other stuff that was keeping me from being able to like, you know, get enough sleep and have enough money really. So that was the first sort of step. And I got, you know, I I graduated from school, I paid my tuition and, you know, my living expenses and whatever from just selling ragamuffins. And then when I was done with school, I kind of wanted to take a break. I was like, really, I was already creating a business. I'd already created a business. And at the time, like I didn't really, honestly, I really didn't know that. Like I just made stuff and sold it. And then, you know, if I needed more money, I'd make more stuff and sell it. And it wasn't like, I didn't like seek out the way, you know, places to sell. But one of the things that had transpired um, was at the little coffee shop where I worked, there was like a sign up that for an ad for um, like a craft store cooperative that was looking for craftspeople to sell their stuff. So I just, you know, at the time they had these little paper things and you could tear off a telephone number that were like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like there yeah, are no totally. QR codes, <laughs> no, no cell phones, no computers, anything <laughs> like that. So you, I tore off this little piece of paper with somebody's phone number on it and I called them up and, you know, I had to go and like, I had to actually make um, a slides, you know, like back in the day where the cardboard and the little transparent image. So I um, submitted my slides to this place over in um, Harvard Square where the store was going to be. And they accepted me. And I was like the youngest person and the sev- there were 70 craftspeople involved. And it was only open for six weeks. It was like Thanksgiving till Christmas. And it was called Christmas Secrets. And every year they would just find a new vacant space that was somewhere in a high traffic area and mostly in Cambridge. And um, so, you know, I just was in, surrounded by all these people who were in business and creating a life with their craft. And so I got a ton of input and support and encouragement and just love from these people who I actually stay in touch with. There is actually a member in Stitcherhood, Donna Lynn Shaw, who is one of those people. And um, they just really helped me between that and having time at school to, to kind of hone my craft and like not have to worry too much about actually making all my work be marketable and saleable, I was able to kind of just push it to a place where it felt like it was ready to be sold in a more volume way. And then when I graduated college, I I had made a plan um, with some friends I'd met out in Canada to go out and do a tree planting season out there um, in British Columbia, which I did, right? I got on a plane like the day after I graduated college and went out and planted for a, a season and um, made a bunch of money and was just kind of like not really sure what I was going to do next. I actually had planned to move out there because it's just like such a beautiful spot and it just, uh, it's amazing. Go just 
visually like the landscape and the the solitude and the it's just amazing so i loved it out there and I came home to kind of pack my stuff and kind of organize like, okay, if I'm going to start a life out there, what am I, how, how, what is that going to look like? And I, you know, this typical um, story, right? I fell madly in love with the dad of my son and didn't get out to British Columbia until years <laughs> later. Um, but <laughs> that um, Charlie, um, who is still a dear friend of mine, but um, not my husband, he um, also had a business. He um, started his business at the age of 14. And he um, is actually he has sold his business pretty recently, but he was a farmer and he grew really good quality um, heirloom variety food, uh, gr- you know, not not livestock, but vegetables. Um, flowers, uh, just this beautiful piece of property that he farmed that was um, part of the dairy farm he grew up on. So he really helped me a lot too, just figuring out how to make it real. Like, what do accountants do? And how do you pay tax? And am I, suppo- am I supposed to be paying tax? And like, how do you hire people? Like, how do you do that? Right. And um, that all kind of came with just knowing the people that I ran across and and learning from them as I went kind of the other thing I remember about scaling my businesses. Um, when I got back home from Canada, my mom said, you should just apply for a craft fair. Both of my parents were artists. So they had, um, a business, a family business that's called the Dolphin Studio. And if you guys have been around a while, you might know, like we make a, a calendar that's kind of our signature product. So I grew up with that and, you know, they were teachers at the high school, but they also had the side hustle where we made calendars and we sold them and it was very seasonal and pretty manageable for that reason. So they had a little bit of experience in that area and they were like, you should just try a show to apply to a show. So I applied to the American Craft Council show in West Springfield, which was pretty near where I was living at the time and actually where I still live now. And um, I got in and I went to that show and I wrote so much business. I came home and quit my waitress job. And the people in the booth next to me were hysterically funny. Janet and Stephen Foss, if you guys are out there listening, hey, <laughs> they every morning I come into the show and they'd have all the ragamuffins in the booth displayed in like different like sexual positions. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, first day I like didn't notice. I'm like, I walk in the booth and I'm like, look, you know, not really paying attention to the product and I'm looking around. Oh my gosh. So, you know, well, I'm like talking to customers, I'm like rearranging stuff. But um people had never ever seen anything like what I was doing at the time. Like it this was in 1988 or no, that was in 1989. And Stephen and Janet had a pretty decent-sized production company for their collection. They were making clothing out of really high-quality fine leathers. And they were talking to me about how, you know, I was asking them a lot of questions about how to go forward. What am I supposed to do now? I got all these orders. And they really encouraged me to seek help from people in, like, old, uh, like, Elders, like people who couldn't see that well, could could thread a large needle with a piece of yarn, which was how I was making my stuff at the time. And they would also have sewing skills, maybe, you know. And um, so I went to, there's like a old people's, like a senior housing place in the town where I was living. And I went there and just was put a little sign up with little rip off numbers again. And uh, 
I got response from my first employee. Her name was Madeline Barberry and she was 83 years old and she made a lot of ragamuffins with me. And, you know, when I, it was awesome. Yeah. She was, she actually worked at later, a few years later after this, that part of my business, I worked, I had a space in a mill in an old textile mill in Housatonic, Massachusetts. That's called, it was called Monument Mills, the name of the mill when it was functioning. And she was the last person to leave there when, you know, they were like, you know, she was a weaver and then she was like a cleaner. And then she was like the last, she was the last person, the last like weaver person to leave that job when they shut down the mill. So it was kind of cool. She stayed with me until I think she was, I think she was like 87 or 88 when she quit. Wow. Her hands were sore, you know, it was hard on her hands, but she recruited a lot of her girlfriends. I had a bunch of people, um, who worked for me that were all in her housing. And we had to be careful about like, you know, this was like before I really knew what I was supposed to do for like legal structure around employing people in their homes, which came later. But we did know that she could only earn a certain amount of money per week so that she wouldn't lose her other benefits that she had. So that's when she started to bring her girlfriends in. So, you know, there was like three or four or five people who lived in the same little housing complex and they could only all earn a certain, I can't remember now what the dollar volume was, but it was a a little bit and it was enough to help me, but it was also, um, became clear that I needed more than just her helping me. Um, and then from there I put a, um, actually Charlie, my partner's sister was the next person I hired and she made ragamuffin part, like different people made different parts. So I would do all the cutting and then I would give like Roberta, my sister-in-law at the time, she would get like a bag full of all the parts she needed to make ragamuffin heads with. And she'd go home and make heads and somebody else, Madeline made legs and bodies. And like everybody had different pieces that they made. And then there'd be another person who would, they'd bring them all back. You know, once a week, everybody would give me their stuff that they finished and I would pay them. And then the next week, those finished components would go out to somebody else who would compile them into the finished ragamuffins. And I think the person who did that job most was my sister, Sophie, who was working her way through college, making ragamuffins when she was going to Keene State at the time. So I would send them to her in the mail and she would, she could make them like in her sleep. She was really quick at it. And she had a really good eye for combining like the colors and the patterns and stuff like that. And then Two years after I graduated college, I had 40 employees. <laughs> yeah. But can you talk a little bit more? Which I remember. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Ask me. Yeah. So, because one thing that you have talked about a lot in the sisterhood and, you know, that I've learned from you over the last year is to make a, to make a textile upcycling business that can actually earn you a living, that you really have to think about your production process, right? And you've just talked about that a little bit, that instead of having all of your employees making entire ragamuffins, you had them specialize. So these people are just making heads and these people are just making legs. But from what I've gathered over the last year, like this next part of your development of your business was really important in figuring out that production, the, how to make production, um, really efficient and, um, and cost efficient so that you can actually make a living from it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
Well, one of the, th- yes, the, it, there's, there's, there's two things. First of all, I want to just say that people would often ask me how I started my, you know, how long did it take me for, to run my business before I pulled a paycheck? And five minutes was my answer because I started my business so I could make money, not because I wanted to start a business. I did not have this idea, like I need to make this much money so I can put it all together and make a business. It was like, I need to pay my tuition and Ronald Reagan just pulled the Pell Grants for anybody under 24. So now I got to pay all of my tuition. And how am I going to do that? I think I'll make ragamuffins. So I knew from that experience that I could, it, it was profitable. I knew that I had this ability to really make, I mean, it, it's sort of an analogy that is drawn to gold. I mean, it's honestly like, I, that's how I felt. I feel like I've done that throughout my whole life is like taken garbage and turned it into money. It's pretty empowering. So to figure out the production part of it, and I don't know exactly how this happened, but it became clear to me that it might've been from Stephen and Janet Foss, but I, I feel like to be, to, I paid people by the piece. And when I was thinking about how much I could afford to pay them by the piece, I was thinking, about like, I don't remember what the minimum wage was in 1988, but I took the minimum wage and I made it like, okay, they can't make minimum wage. They got to make like time and a half minimum wage needs to be like the baseline of how much money these people can make if they can do this well. And so I would, I would do time studies on like how long it would take me to make a ragamuffin leg. And then I would double the time because it was my thought that because I figured out how to do it myself, I knew like there was like processes that I just could do more quickly than most people. And if I was going to have to teach that to somebody who didn't have that idea themselves, they were just going to inherently be slower at it. There was going to be a learning curve involved. So the teaching process made me go, okay, if I can teach them how to do one piece of this super efficiently so that they can make that time and a half minimum or more, they're going to be happy. They're going to give me good product. And I'm going to have a marketable thing that I know how much it's going to cost me to sell it. So that all was, it's sort of like I've had these experiences throughout my career where I don't really know how I thought of something. It just kind of came through me. And I feel like that is one of those things. Like it wasn't hard. It was very logical to me. It's like, I can't teach somebody to make a whole ragamuffin and expect them to do it well and efficiently quickly. So how can I break this down and make it easy for, for people to make money? So that's how I came to it. And that just followed me through everything. Like, you know, at the time I was only using wool sweaters. I wasn't trying to look, I wasn't looking at t-shirts. I wasn't looking at denim. I wasn't looking at anything else. I would go in the, the thrift stores and I would buy wool sweaters and I would only buy wool sweaters that were colors and patterns that I wanted to use that were specifically going to be used for ragamuffins. And that piece of it, beca- like I, I be- it became very apparent pretty quickly, like within the first year that I couldn't source enough material to make my business grow the way it was actually growing. So um, that might be a little bit off subject for the question that you asked me, which was like, how like is process? So consistency is so important. And there's so many inconsistencies in any kind of textile upcycling business where, you know, if you, for instance, say, okay, I'm going to just accept donation. People can just give me clothes, right? Like they can just 
drop off whatever clothing they're not wearing. Well, you're going to get, you know, bras and underpants and you're going to get jeans and you're going to get button up shirts and t-shirts and spandex, whatever. And there's no consistency, right? But if you say, I'll take anybody's jeans. Okay. So now you're, you're, you're honing in. It's like, it's like niching down when people talk about marketing a business, like you want to be super specific about what you're asking people for so that you can provide, uh, you, you can turn that material into something of value without it being so expensive that you won't be profitable. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Cool. So you know what? I think we should go. Um, I think we should take a little quick break right now, you guys. This is um, I'm Crispina. I'm getting interviewed today by my girlfriend, Sarah, up in um, New Hampshire. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back so I can tell you about how the product development happened in my business. Today's episode of Rags to Riches podcast is brought to you by the Stitcherhood Recycling Society, my online membership community for creative textile upcycling, recycling, and reuse entrepreneurs. Inspiration, shared experience, tutorials, business savvy, and connection to a whole posse of people who understand the passion and intricacies of running an environmentally kind creative textile upcycling biz. Daily posts, weekly stitch hours, book recommendations, group chats, member profiles, and strong connections is what you can expect when you join Stitcherhood. Head on over to stitcherhood.crispina.eco and sign up for a free seven-day trial to see if my Stitcherhood Recycling Society is a good fit for you and your textile upcycling business. Okay. Hey, we're back. Um, Sarah, can you ask your question you were just asking? Yeah. So where we left off is you have grown your business from just you to employing amazing people from the local senior center to grow now having 40 employees who are working in a really organized production uh design so that you can have consistent product and so that they can be most efficient. But so far we've just heard about ragamuffins. So what happened next? Why, why did you decide to diversify your product? Well, um, you know, honestly, I get a little bored, you know, I get a little bit like, okay, that's cool. I got that figured out. What's next. Right. So I was creating this material, like I was making, I was buying sweaters from the Goodwill. I was creating this awesome textured fabric that was like, you know, spongy, felty, yummy, like wool felt. And I just, you know, was playing with it one day, making stuff. And I thought, I mean, I actually made a whole lot of ragamuffins during that time as well. Not just um, managing other people. And I thought, oh, mittens. Okay, cool. And then, so that was like a super easy, like, transition like this it was the same colors were ap- appropriate for ragamuffins or mittens so the same types of materials were being used and i started making mittens and i people you know they were mis they were called mismatched mittens and they had like um a leather patch sewn on the palm that was um also from well it was from my friends that i'd met at the um at the first show i did they sent me little scraps i couldn't use and so mismatched mittens were like a big hit and and you know, we were that that introduced another level of like structure where, okay, things had to be sized. We got left mittens and right mittens. And, you know, you never really think about it 
if you're me until you're actually doing it, how many pieces of, you know, cut material goes into one pair of mittens. So that, that was, you know, cool that they went really well. And then, you know, my business was like doubling in size every year, like all, you know, people were just like, we could not make enough stuff. Like people, you know, I had to turn people away. Um, I was telling one of the guys that works with me, who's 23 years old yesterday about how before I had a computer, I like addressed all the packages, like with a marker on a piece of paper, you know, like tape it down with a clear tape. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago. That's how I ran my business. So from the mittens, then I started thinking about, oh, I love blankets. I love quilts. I love like textile spans, like a large flat pieces of stuff. I really just, I don't know why I just love that. So I started making sewing together squares of sweater material into a blanket. I actually have the very first blanket I ever made. And it's it, that transition from all completely hand sewn with no sewing machines to I would sew together four squares into a, like one bigger square by hand. And then I would machine sew those together. So all of a sudden it was like part of that labor cost was getting reduced because it was just so much faster to use a sewing machine. Um, but that also introduced the need for me to have a place for people to come and work because they couldn't necessarily have the type of a sewing machine that was needed for that process in their own home. So it was blankets were next. And then I started making sweaters out of sweaters, um, right around actually the same time as the blankets. Um, and again, everything, like I, I'd make something and it would, I'd take it to a show and like, I would just sell out, like people were going crazy for the stuff. They, nobody had ever seen anything like what I was doing. Like they were first were like, they would look at it and they'd be like, what is the material? Like, what is it made out of? And I'd be like, uh, you know, I, I would almost be a little shy because at the time, like thrift stores were not cool. <laughs> like it was where poor people shopped. And um, then I, you know, sometimes they would look and they'd see like a piece of a placket or some, you know, ribbing from the bottom of a sweater somewhere on the whatever they were looking at and they'd get it. And they'd be like, oh my God. And they'd either be like super excited and like blown away by it, or they'd be completely repulsed and be like, oh my God, is it clean? (laughs) 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 So, you know, there was a lot of gentle education that happened for really like actually a very long time where, yes, it is clean and this is how we clean it. And this is why it's you know, wool is antimicrobial and it's natural product and blah, 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 blah. So that became a really large part of my job, actually. Um, So product design and then gentle education. And by the time I had my full on 40 person staff, I had actually two different production managers who did all of like you know, figuring out how many pieces of what kind of what we need to have done by what time frame, and they manage all of that. Um, I I would teach the sewers how to do what they needed to do, and design new product, and figure out how to educate people to just the just looking for acceptance, looking to make people understand that the product was not only was it clean, but it was also super flipping cool to be able to take the stuff that was really not useful and make it into something that was trendy and cool and useful and also nurturing to the environment and the people who were making it. So can I, I want to, I want to ask 
at this phase, were you selling only at shows? Were you wholesaling? What was, what was your sales strategies? Yeah, I did. At this point, I wasn't doing really any retail. I was all, it was all wholesale. So the first show that I did, the West Springfield show that I did for the American Craft Council was a wholesale show. And so I was able to go to the show with just the product that I had, you know, made already, the samples, whatever, and then sell from those samples. Like, oh, you want, you know, 12 ragamuffins. Okay, cool. And I would look at my little handwritten list of all the orders and my little, you know, I had like a paper, like a book, like a journal where I wrote down, you know, the orders that people had placed. I didn't have order forms. I didn't have catalogs. I had no idea how, what I was doing. I was like first time out. And I would just like kind of figure out in my head as I was standing there, like how long it would take for me to be able to make all the stuff that was on that list ahead of this order that I was writing. Um, so that it was kind of cool because it, it enables me to go, okay, I don't have to make all of this product at once. I can just show this stuff and see what people like and then, you know, make it to order. Um, and then that, that, that continued. So I really didn't do any retail shows. Um, but I did have uh, two annual studio sales where I would sell like the samples or the stuff that was like, it didn't, you know, when, when I was selling wholesale, there was this, again, consistency going back to that. It's so important. Like when I showed, for instance, like I made these big hoodie sweaters for years, they were like kangaroo pocket. They were really oversized and I had them available in three different color families. So there was like light neutral and there was what I called cranberry, which was like navy blue, dark green, any kind of burgundy color, that kind of family, chocolate brown, maybe some olives in there. And then there was like really bright brights, like crayon box of colors, like, you know, primaries and secondary bright colors. So if a sewer made a sweater that didn't really fit, like I would categorize the sweaters that my sewers would pull from and they would have a work order that would say, I need six light neutral hoodies you know, this week, but for some reason, something got in that box that wasn't really that right color sort or whatever, those things would be available for sale in a retail setting, which I would have in my studio twice a year. And I would sell things for the price that I was wholesaling them for at those events, which made them kind of attainable to my local community. Um, and, you know, so then the local people would also be able to like, you know, have my work and tell me what they liked and they didn't like about it. So I would have like more ability to, you know, know how, how it was wearing. What do you wear it with? How do you like, you know, whatever, like what are all of those things that you learn when you do retail sales? So, um, that was the structure that I had at the time. And when I was doing whole, you know, over the years and, you know, wholesale, I started doing the New York international gift fair, which was my biggest show for probably 15 years. And, um, you know, that in that setting, I would be writing orders with companies like Crate and Barrel and um, Fiorucci and Esprit and the big names that would order, you know, I, I once had an order that was like for 4,000 ragamuffins, like, that was a lot of ragamuffins. And it was like, everybody I knew, I was like, can you help me make legs? You know, like everybody was all, like all hands on deck and we did it. And we, you know, we were able to ship it. And so there was, um, you know, 
the sort of smaller boutique store wholesale accounts. And then there was these large volume, um, more kind of household name kind of accounts. And, you know, I much preferred working with the smaller volume boutique stores, but the larger volume uh, companies were, you know, put my name on the map. You know, when you saw my stuff in a Timberland store, you were going to see it at the smaller boutique store and be like, oh my gosh, it, if Timberland says it's good, then it must be good kind of thing. So um, it was almost like part of the difficulty or the, there's just a lot of like bureaucracy and like rules and regulations about the size of the box that you ship in and how many units are in the box and how much each unit weighs. And of course, when you're working with recycled materials, that sort of minutia of consistency is very hard to hit. So um, the difficulty was kind of outweighed by the, the aspect of the transaction that really turned into a marketing thing for me. Yeah. So I'm actually... As we're having this conversation, Crispina, I'm going, ooh, I think we might have to have a second one of these later <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot that we're talking about here that is, um, you know, just kind of about these early years. And I know there's a whole piece where you started to do more partnerships with Timberland and with Eileen Fisher and you talked about Crate and Barrel. And so I think there's a whole area of that. And then there's all this recent stuff that I really do want to get into with you sometime about, um, you know, what it, cause you've talked, you're sort of slowing down your production in order to expand into, um, kind of growing the entire textile upcycling space and, the number of entrepreneurs and the connections that they can build with each other. And so I'm just kind of planting that seed with you. I think we're going to have to do this again. Uh, but maybe we can talk a little bit, maybe we can finish off today's conversation talking about some of those bigger brand partnerships and, and what you started to, to learn in those partnerships. Sure. So, um, how does that sound? I think that sounds great. And I actually think that it's a great idea to do like a segmented series because it is a lot and it's sort of like, you know, I see it as, as broken up into like three, three kind of main segments for sure, maybe even four. So I'm totally down with that. So you guys, this is part one. Okay. If you're listening out there, part one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So let's see the partnerships um, that I started with back in the days of my heavy wholesale um, years were really initiated by my customers. Like I did not reach out to people to, initiate any kind of connection. I've never really been that great at that. Like tooting my own horn was something that I just, I just never really did. But, um, again, like this was like, all of this stuff was happening like in the early nineties and, you know, there was not, there was just nothing out there like it. There was, there was the first other company that I saw doing work that was made from recycled sweaters was a company called Ecologic. And um, I think you probably have met Kathleen, Sarah, um, Kathleen and Charlie Tesnakis. Um, they're based in Troy, New York. Are um, they, Actually, there's an, in, there's an episode with Kathleen in the Rags to Riches archive. If you guys want to look that up, I think it might be episode number five or four. Anyway, it's back there somewhere. But um, 
I was actually on the jury for the craft for the um, New York International Gift Fair, and you know, back in the day, those cardboard slides again. We like me and five or six other people would sit in a room twice a year and just go through thousands of applications to. Um, fill the, any um, uh, available booths at the gift fair. And when I saw their work, I was so excited because it was completely their own design. It was not anything, they had not been influenced by my work, but they had a similar sensibility. And it just made me go like, oh my gosh, there's this opportunity to um, have this be much bigger, right? So that was one thing that came to mind. And then at those gift shows, you know, I think the first company that I did a volume order with was Esprit. And um, Esprit is no longer around, but they were very forward thinking. They were kind of like the Eileen Fisher visionaries of the 1990s. And um, they just were really smitten by my stuff. They, they, they loved it. And they had a very specific color. Like I did a uh, kind of custom color sort for them. And we did that first year we did scarves and it might've been just, I feel like there was more products involved, but we made a lot of scarves for a spray and they sold them at their flagship stores. We shipped a lot to their Paris store. Um, and that kind of made me realize that there was this, acceptance on that level. Um, and they were lovely to work with. They were kind of like <laughs> the calm before the storm of working with people who were not so lovely to work with, but, um, they were amazing and they just really encouraged me. Then the other thing that happened, um, that really helped me build those inroads with the larger brands was in 1995, I was invited to participate in, the Social Venture Network's annual conference, I was invited to present my business as a zero waste business. And it was the first time I ever heard, the invitation was the first time I ever heard the term zero waste. I didn't really know what that meant. And when I started thinking about it, I was like, I'm not really zero waste. I mean, I, I got a dumpster. Like there, there's definitely garbage that comes out of this business. But what they were looking at was the production like there was not a whole lot of waste coming off my production floor. I mean, there was like threads off the floor from the sewing machines or whatever, but there wasn't like piles of fabric that was going in the dumpster. So I went there and I, at that conference, I met like Ben and Jerry <laughs> and Eileen Fisher and Ram Das and just some really crazy, notable, awesome people who took me right under their wing and were like, you know, if you ever need help, let me know. And, oh, there was a lot of times I needed help. So I let them know. And pretty much every single time they stepped right up and helped me with whatever was the, the, the challenge of the time. Um, and that just, I don't know, that, that setting was just, it just enabled me to think much bigger than I had prior. I was just like, not this like, little art student person who was kind of figuring out how to put a business together. I was suddenly being recognized as kind of a forward thinking ahead of my time person and a business person, um, you know, have like literally like eating lunch with Ben and Jerry and having them like be really interested in what I was doing and asking me about my business made me like, Oh my, I mean, these people were like my gods. They were like my superheroes. I had read everything there was to read about Ben and Jerry long before I met them. And you know, social enterprise was like a new phrase. Like that wasn't something people were doing. 
Ben and Jerry were the first really to be recognized as like nobody at Ben and Jerry's could make five times more than the lowest paid employee, including Ben and Jerry. Like that was cool. Um, that, that was the kind of thing that was just really interesting to me in like building a business where people could actually, you know, have a living and also not be like, um, contributing to the the demise of our environment i thought really spoke to me and actually one of the things that i th- i remember like so the the i call them the guys and ties the um economic development council people from the state of new york where i was first based um were really helpful i i was really good at asking people for help and that's i think i kind of joke about it but i think it's a really integral piece of running a successful business of any kind and um, so the guys and ties would come out and meet with me and, and help me kind of figure out like, you know, stuff that I didn't really know much about, like, you know, international sales and how to export or whatever. Um, and they, the people who I was, who I employed of the 40 people, 25 of them worked at home. And most of those people were people who had to work at home for some reason, either maybe they didn't have a car, they had young kids at home, maybe they were caring for other people's kids, or maybe they had aging parents, or for whatever reason, they just could not, they were not not able to work outside of the home. But they could make it in to my studio once a week, pick up new material, drop off what they had finished, and have that little window into like this life outside of the home, which was really nurturing for a lot of them. and. I remember the guys and ties. I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He was such a sweetheart, but he was, you know, this retired IBM executive. And I was like this, you know, art school hippie chick making ragamuffins. And he never passed judgment. He thought it was really cool. And he um, told me that the people I was employing were deemed unemployable by the state of New York. And I just was like, unemployable, like, how do you call somebody that and feel like your day is okay? Like, how can you say that about someone like unemployable? Like, that's just mean. Like, and that was like the state. It wasn't even like, he wasn't saying it. Like, I feel like these people are unemployable. That was like a label the state had given people who were in that situation, who couldn't leave the home to work because they were poor, basically. And like, then then it it was like oh so this isn't really just about like material that people have discarded this is about people that other people have i don't know if discarded is the right word to use but like have dismissed as being part of culture Like that was just so crazy to me. Like, so in those, some of those women who were most, most of my employees, the very vast majority of my employees were women. And some of those women worked for me for 15, 20 years. And, you know, they went on to college. Their kids came to work for me. Like I get so emotional about it because I'm like, they were deemed like useless pieces of shit by culture. And then, Sorry, we're on a podcast episode. I'm going to try to pull it together now, people. But yeah, so, you know, watching those people realize that 
you know, I don't think they realized that that's what they were deemed by the government. But I think that as soon as they realized that they had this value that they could, you know, make a living and, and feed their kids better food and be congratulated for doing a good job and then see their shit for sale at, you know, Crate and Barrel. Everybody who made stuff for me had their name on the yeah. finished piece that they made. And like, so, you know, they'd have a hang tag and they, one of the parts of their job was they had to sign the hang tag when they brought the goods back so that that followed the piece right out the door. And then everybody would know that, you know, Crispina designs wasn't just Crispina designing. It was actually Crispina designing, but a whole lot of other people making. So that was yeah. a cool, cool, a really cool thing that I feel like is a really important part of textile upcycling in general is that it's not just about the fabric. Yeah. It's really a kind of looking beyond capitalism to the, not just the products that we've discarded, but kind of how we employ people and how we determine value and worth and so much, you know, really so, cool. so much. Yeah, it is really cool. And I'll tell you something. It's so empowering. It's so empowering. I mean, from a purely selfish standpoint, it made me feel really good every day to feel like I had offered an opportunity to somebody who just nobody else had the time or the inclination to offer this really smart, creative, beautiful person an opportunity to thrive. Like it wasn't hard. They weren't doing me any favors. They were making money. I was making money. We were cleaning up all the shit that would have been in the landfill. Like, I don't know. There's nothing that's not good about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should stop there for today. There's nothing that's not good about that. I think that's good. Yeah, too. And, you know, yeah. Thank you, Sarah. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, so I'm over here and I'm serving you a giant air hug because you just finished another episode of the Rags to Riches Textile Upcycling Podcast. Thank you for being with me. Our music is provided by The Lucky Five. Learn more about them at theluckyfive.com. Our show is produced and edited by Van Dalhyasen. If you want to dive in deep, head over to Rags to Riches Textile Upcycling Podcast.com. 